What is reality? What kind of world do we live in? Do we live in an endlessly frustrating and futile realm of grinding monotony, where a few good meals and fleeting merriment is the best we can hope for, and unbearable loss and grief what we can guarantee? Or do we live in a realm of endless possibility and grandeur, not so conspicuously present to the untrained eye, but waiting to be discovered? Awareness is the door to the infinite Buddhaverse, and faith is the key, but study, practice, and experience are the only way to find that key and enter. Let's get you one step closer to that veranda by profiling the modern meditation master, His Holiness Rangjong Rigpe Dorje, the 16th Karmapa. What we need is a Buddhaverse emerging. In other words, we need Nirvana emerging. Sisters and brothers, Dharma masters, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Supreme Assembly, welcome to the Buddhaverse podcast. Today is Monday, December 27th, 2021, and I will be doing the first Modern Meditation Master Monday podcast episode on His Holiness, Rangjong Rigpe Dorje, the 16th Karmapa. This year marks the 40th anniversary of his passing out of this realm of materiality in Zion, Illinois in 1981, and moving into his next incarnation of Orgyan Trinle Dorje, the 17th Karmapa. But of course, the Karmapas, like the Dalai Lamas, being none other than the bodily incarnation lineage of Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of Compassion, never come and never go. They are never born and never die, and are ubiquitously present in all places of reality. But for sentient beings, for our senses, for our frame of mind and reference, for our benefit, they take form in ways that we can relate with and learn from. In His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa is a prime example of the reality of this situation. This being the Buddhaverse podcast means that this is the Buddhaverse, meaning this universe has Buddhas in it. This is a Buddha universe. We live in the Buddha and the Buddha lives within us. And this being the reality of the situation, sometimes, if you have your eyes and ears open, this fact becomes abundantly clear, and then faith, confidence, and blessings can flow in our mind stream and we can become accustomed to the sublime nature of our reality. We are able to shed our previous limited projections of what we are aware of in exchange for the glorious, inconceivable, wonderful reality that is just beyond the veil of our conceptual overlays and habitual conditioning. Our minds get lit up like the 4th of July, and suddenly we see that we are not stuck or fixed into our frame of reference, but in fact the mind is unlimited. But for this to occur, you have to encounter it. It must manifest in no uncertain terms in front of your face so that you can know that it's real. In Hindi, this is called darshan, or an encounter with a truly realized being. And the purpose of my Modern Meditation Master Monday series is to show that this darshan has occurred many, many times in the previous century from many, many masters by people who are still alive and can attest to the events that they encountered.
But of course, the problem with reality is that we each live in our own. And when some extraordinary thing happens to someone that challenges your preconceived notion about the way things work, you have four choices. You can have blind faith, you can be a skeptic, an agnostic, or you can be a scientist and put such claims to the test of reasoning and experience. Things such as ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, extrasensory perception, all fall into this category of things that seem to happen to people all the time, but can easily be dismissed by anyone who simply chooses to ignore the other person's experience. Such is the nature of a subjective experience that it cannot be measured or recorded, so physical evidence of a phenomenon of consciousness is difficult to parse, but not impossible. However, subjective testimony is valid in clinical medical trials, it is valid in the court of law, it is valid in any circumstance where you trust the person giving the account to not be a liar. So in the case of people who have or had met Rangjong Rigpe Dorje, the miraculous 16th Karmapa, you can either ignore these stories as fallacious delusional fantasy, or you can absorb the information as evidence that points to the notion that sometimes, in this world, the Dharma realm, or the realm of truth, the majestic, extraordinary realm of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we cannot always see or sense, blends into our mundane reality so that we can catch a whiff of the truth, we can catch a glimpse of the Dharma, and we can get a taste of the transcendent. I feel that it is our job as Buddhists to encourage others to have faith in the Buddha Dharma, as it is the teaching that is undeceiving, and thus those that promote the Dharma, as Dzongsar Kensei Rinpoche calls them, the stakeholders of Buddhism, should also be undeceiving. And although this is not always the case, Buddhism's track record is unparalleled in this world in terms of scrupulousness, scholarship, integrity, uprightness, compassion, and wisdom. So with what you are about to hear, try not to assume that these people are making stuff up, but in fact are tapping into the miraculous display of the deepest level of ultimate reality and reporting back to the rest of us on what they encountered. So I'll begin this episode with a brief biography of the 16th Karmapa from the Treasury of Lives website and the Kagju.org website, and then I'll get into some of the experiences of those who met His Holiness. I should also mention that these are just a few examples from a lifetime of this great Dharma master, Saint and Siddha, so you can imagine how many such anecdotes there are that I've never heard, and there are many stories that I have heard but don't have time to cover in this podcast. So I'll be providing links to the 16th Karmapa Stupa website and YouTube channel on the BuddhaVersePodcast.com website, where you can discover for yourself what it was like to be in the presence of a Buddha in the 20th century. So to begin, here's a verse from His Holiness the 17th Karmapa, Orgyen Trinli Dorje, about the great 16th. Beings are not born great, but in the course of their lifetime, from birth to parinirvana, their activities naturally come to reflect their greatness. Among his many life achievements, the 16th Karmapa presided over the Karma Kamstang lineage during the tumultuous transition from its traditional bases in Tibet into diaspora, where it was no longer supported by the traditional culture and geography of Tibet. He ensured that his heart sons and the other lamas upholding the Karma Kamstang all had a sound base in Sikkim after their escape from Tibet and provided them with leadership, hope, and a vision for the future in a land that was new and alien to them. 
except through sheer spiritual power and fierce commitment. It is hard to imagine how anyone could bring the lineage through such radical changes intact, much less lead it to flourish. I am deeply inspired by the 16th Karmapa's resilience in the face of these obstacles. I take courage in how much he could achieve despite the great adversities he faced. From the book The Miraculous 16th, Incredible Encounters with the Black Crown Buddha, Lama Surya Das writes the following. Rongjong Rigpe Dorje, which translate as the self-existent diamond thunderbolt of innate wisdom awareness. He was the Grand Lama of the Kagju lineage and the 16th incarnation of the oldest line of reincarnated spiritual masters, an unbroken line stretching back 900 years. He had escaped from Tibet, along with many monks and followers, just before the complete Chinese conquest of that beleaguered country in 1959. His Holiness Karmapa took up residence in Sikkim, renovated an old monastery at Rumtek, and soon became renowned as one of the most extraordinary spiritual masters of the 20th century. He established meditation centers, monasteries, nunneries, and study institutes all around the world, as well as hospitals, schools, and infirmaries. His Holiness played a crucial role in bringing the ancient Tantric Vajrayana teachings to the Western world and was the spiritual guide to hundreds and thousands of people during his lifetime. He was known for his miraculous powers and psychic abilities, as well as his remarkably powerful presence and inspiring example. He was truly an enlightened Buddhist meditation master, a sage, saint, teacher, and abbot all in one. His followers said that he could talk with birds and other animals, he appeared and blessed, taught and empowered, healed and helped us in countless ways, in dreams, in visions, in meditation, and in reality. He precipitated enlightenment experiences and other epiphanies and spiritual breakthroughs in the hearts and minds of his disciples, me included. His Holiness rarely gave detailed text-based teachings, at least to us Westerners, although he was always a powerful, edifying, and empowering influence. He radiated such marvelous awakened energy and sacred presence that he helped to forever transform my life. He seemed to directly pour some elixir-like piece of himself into each of us, without allowing that sacred spiritual energy to be adulterated by our conceptual minds, personalities, or other such obstacles. Through the realization of his innate Buddha nature, the 16th Karmapa reflected our own innate Buddhaness. So many people, including the most erudite Tibetan scholars, were astonished by his direct, intimate, irresistible, and inexpressible mind-to-mind, heart-to-heart spiritual resuscitation. So rare in this world today, so subtle, esoteric, and even legendary, if not mythical. I believe that it is precisely why almost everyone he knew or ever met seemed to instinctively look up to and be awestruck by him, regardless of their tradition, beliefs, or backgrounds. Most people, including important lamas, felt that he could see right through them. Some even felt intimidated. His holiness was a world teacher of timeless universal truth in the modern world. Many of his well-developed disciples helped bring Buddhism, meditation, Tibetan yoga, and mindfulness to the Western world during the 60s and subsequent decades, such as Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the pioneering lama and founder of Naropa University. In 1981, during one of his several world teaching tours, the Karmapa passed away at a hospital in Illinois, which only affirmed his heartful embrace of all beings, East and West, as his family. The attending physician cried when he saw the marvelous signs and omens around the Karmapa's body for the three days following his last breath. 
His Holiness continues his universal mission of compassion and enlightenment as the youthful 17th Karmapa, as well as by his many students and emanations. I can never forget my Lama. He is always with me, in me, of me, closer than my own breath, blood, and heartbeat. We are all Karmapa at heart. It's so close that we can overlook it. It seems too good to be true, so we can't believe it. Our only mission? His mission to recognize and awaken to this fact, to our true Buddha nature, for the benefit of one and all, for a better world and future to be possible, right now, right here. Experiencing the awakened presence of a sacred master is difficult to comprehend and harder to explain. I feel I meet him in my morning meditation practice, through the chants and prayers he taught. The true guru never dies. He or she is a principle, an archetype, not limited by mortality. I carry him in my heart. He carries me and us all in his. Thus he never died. One night in 1981, not long after he departed from this dewdrop-like world, the 16th Karmapa appeared to me in a luminous, clear light dream when I was in the middle of a three-year, three-month, and three-day retreat. He softly proclaimed, I am always with you. Each of you will be with me through all of my lifetimes. I belong to you, and you belong to me. We shall never be parted. From the treasuryoflives.org Authored by Alexander Gardner The 16th Karmapa Rangjung Rigpe Dorje was born in 1924, the wood rat year of the 15th sexagenary cycle. He was born in Denkok in Kham to an aristocratic family in the service of the Derge court named Den Atubtsong. His father was named Paljortse Wong Norbu, and his mother was named Kelsong Choden. His brother would be identified as the sixth Zogchen Punlop, Jiktrotse Wong Dorje. A two-volume biography of the 16th Karmapa by Gerd Bosch called Radiant Compassion, which provides the main source for this essay, finally details his life and activities. The Karmapa's parents were patrons of the fifth Dzogchen Rinpoche, Tukjin Chuki Dorje who is said to have predicted that they would give birth to a great lama. Towards the end of her next pregnancy, with that prophecy in mind, Kelsong Dolma resided in Padmasambhava Cave, known as Senge Namzong. According to a legend, on the night before his birth, the infant disappeared from his mother's womb and spent an entire day in the pure realms before returning. The Karmapa line of incarnations maintains a custom by which each incarnation leaves a letter predicting his subsequent birth. These letters are often discovered in personal amulets or other gifts given by the Karmapa to a disciple. In this case, the 15th Karmapa, Kakyav Dorje's attendant lama, Jampel Tsotram, came forth with a letter he had discovered in an amulet the Karmapa had given him. Eager to find the reincarnation of their lama, the 15th Karmapa, Situ Rinpoche and Jamgong Kongshul Rinpoche opened the prediction letter that he had left. They found a description and the location of the home, mentioning the Atub family by name, and specifying the date of birth as the 15th day of the sixth month. Situ Rinpoche and Jamgong Kongshul Rinpoche sent a search party to determine whether a child might have been born to the family on such a date. The moment they met the remarkable son of the Atub family, the search was successfully concluded. In addition to the letter, the 11th Tai Situ, Pema Wangchuk Gelpo, is said to have experienced visions regarding the rebirth. Based on the contents of the letter, the Situ sent out a search party and located the child. 
even as the eleventh situ in the administration of Tsurpu Monastery, the seat of the Karmapa incarnations, were finalizing their search, the Tibetan government in Lhasa, which claimed authority to approve the selection of major incarnations, announced that the sixteenth Karmapa had been recognized as the son of a cabinet minister named Lungsar Dorje Tsegyel, a man reputed to have desired control over regions of Tibet dominated by the Karmakagju. The thirteenth Dalai Lama, Tumten Gyatso, issued a statement affirming the recognition. But the administration of Tsurpu appealed to the government's declaration, but the government declined to retract it. For close to a year, the negotiations continued, until the Langshar's son fell from a roof and died. The Tsurpu administration again submitted the name of the Tsurpu Labrang candidate, but because it was the only name then in contention, the government again refused to consider it, not wanting to allow Tsurpu to determine the identity. Peru Kense Karma Jangmyang Kense Ozer, reincarnation of Jangmyang Kense Wangpo, based in Palpung Monastery, circumvented the government's obstruction by submitting the same child twice, once as the son of his father and again as the son of his mother. The government declared that the son of his mother was the correct candidate. The child remained with his parents for the first few years in Denkok. Around the year 1931, when he was seven years old, Situ and the second Jamgong Kontro, Kensei Ozer, went to his parents' house and gave him lay and bodhisattva vows. Soon after, Beru Kensei visited the child and presented him with robes of the 15th Karmapa and the famous black crown of the Karmapas, which had been sent from Serpu. The hat is believed to be a physical representation of an invisible hat woven from the hair of the Dakinis that is always present on the Karmapa's head. The young Karmapa then made his way to Palpung to be formally enthroned. En route, he stopped at the Derge capital and was given a public reception by the king, Sewang Dudel. After crossing the pass from Paljorgong, he was met by a large procession from Palpung with hundreds of monks in full splendor. Four days after arriving, he was enthroned at the monastery's massive main temple in the ceremony presided over by Situ and Kongtrol, who would also supervise his initial education. The Karmapa would consider the two lamas as his root gurus. Not long after his enthronement at Palpung, the child traveled to Tsurpu Monastery in the company of Situ and a large contingent of monks and lay people. They stopped over at the Kagju monasteries on the way, including Karmagong and Zermong Dutsitil. En route, the Karmapa, still only a child, performed two central duties of his position. He identified the child of seven as the 11th Garwang Toku, and he performed the black hat ceremony for the first time in a monastery named Gina. This is a ritual in which the Karmapa places the black hat on his head and recites the mantra of Avalokiteshvara, revealing himself to those who can perceive him as an emanation of the deity. The 16th Karmapa would become known around the world for this elegant ceremony. They arrived at Serpu via the route along Yenchen Tangla, a major mountain along the north of Lhasa that was long considered a regional deity and was welcomed in late summer by the dominant incarnations of the Karmakagji lineage, including Kongtrol, the 10th Pawo, Soklak Mawai Wangshak, and the 11th Serpu Gyeltsab, Drakpa The Karmapa received his novice tensor, the haircutting ceremony given to children entering the religious life in Lhasa from the 13th Dalai Lama. According to legend, when the Karmapa went before the Dalai Lama to have a lock of his hair cut, the Dalai Lama turned to his attendant and demanded to know why the child had not removed his black hat. The surprised Lama, whose vision was not as pure as the Dalai Lama's, insisted that the boy was bareheaded. All present realized that the 13th Dalai Lama had been able to perceive the naturally appearing wisdom crown that all Karmapas bear, 
but only those of pure view actually perceive. In 1955, in his own next life as the 14th, the Dalai Lama visited Serpu to receive the Black Crown Ceremony from the 16th Karmapa. Back at Serpu, the child was enthroned a second time in a ceremony presided over by Situ and the 10th Drukchen Mipyamchoki Wangpo with Gyaltsub and the 10th Pawo. While at Serpu, the young Karmapa was educated by the 9th Gangkar Lama, Karma Shedrup Choki Senge, who was considered one of the finest Karma Kargyu scholars of his generation. This Lama was strict and would attempt to gain his pupil's attention by locking the door to the classroom before prostrating and pinching and striking him when he misbehaved. Relatives of the Karmapa decided that Gangkar Lama was not sufficiently deferential to the child and had him removed. In January 1936, the twelfth month of the wood pig year, at the age of fourteen, the Karmapa returned to Kam to train with his two main teachers, Situ and Kongtrul. Several miracles are said to have occurred on the journey. At a hot spring known as Sardi Chutsen, snakes came out to greet the Karmapa, who, to the horror of his attendants, went amid them and declared, I am the king of snakes. They later passed a place called Sokpur, where they had to cross a frozen river. The Karmapa's footprints are said to have remained visible even after the ice thawed. His first tutor, having been dismissed, on his arrival at Dilyak Monastery in Nangchen, the leader of the Karma Gong, the original seat of the Karmapa incarnations, insisted on assigning a lama named Samten Gyatso, who had been a teacher to the 15th Karmapa and was the uncle of Tulku Urjin, Sewang Chodra Pelbar. According to Tulku Urjin, Samten Gyatso never beat the Karmapa. Instead, when the teenage lama misbehaved, his tutor would strike his own attendant, a lama named Dudel, which would quickly convince the compassionate Karmapa to sit and focus on his studies. The elderly Samten Gyatso remained his tutor only briefly. Upon reaching Pelpong, he requested to be dismissed, citing his advanced age, and Situ assigned Beru Kensei to the position. A fierce lama, he too was forced by the Karmapa's family to step aside after beating the Karmapa repeatedly. The 10th Zermang Tentral, Karma Lojo Gyatso Dryong, assumed the responsibility for a time, during which he transmitted Jamgong Kongtrol's treasury of knowledge. Tentral, together with Kongtrol, transmitted the new treasures of Chogyur Lingpa. While the Karmapa was at Palpung in 1938, Situ transmitted the remainder of the major Kagju scriptures, including Jamgong Kongtrol's treasury of instructions and treasury of Kagyu Tantra. The Karmapa also crossed the pass over to Zongsar Monastery to meet Kensei Choki Lodro, for whom he performed the black hat ceremony. Choki Lodro reported seeing the mystical hat hovering above the Karmapa's head. In 1940, the Karmapa again returned to Serpu, stopping over at monasteries such as Benchen and Zermang Yamgyalse on a journey of 11 months. At Zermang, he met with envoys who had come to Pelpong from Zermang to petition the Karmapa to find the rebirth of the 10th Trungpa, Karma Choki Ninje, and in response he provided them with various details of the reincarnation's family and location he had received in two visions, thus identifying the 11th Trungpa, Choki Gyatso, better known in the West as Chogam Trungpa. While traveling through Nangchen, the Karmapa's mother fell ill. Toku Origin's father, a renowned healer, was called on to heal her at Dilyak Monastery, but he was unsuccessful and she passed away. She was cremated outside the monastery. Having returned to his main seat, the Karmapa went into retreat for three years. On the conclusion of his retreat, the Karmapa went on pilgrimage, visiting Samye, Marpa's house in Lodrak and Bhutan, on the invitation of the third king Jikme Dorje Wangchuk. 
He arrived at the Kurje Lakong in April 1944 and visited other royal monasteries as well, such as Tashi Choling and Wangdu Choling, presiding over public audiences for thousands of devotees. He returned to Tsurpu in the summary of 1944 and received full ordination from Situ. Karmapa was known for his love of animals, particularly of birds, and wherever he lived he kept scores of them. In later life he kept an aviary with dozens of rare birds. When they were sick he would heal them, and when they were dying he would perform poa, the transference of consciousness to the pure realms. Toku Orjin, who spent many years with the Karmapa in the 1940s and 50s, told of a particular bird that was particularly dear to the Karmapa, which had been given to him by Samten Gyatso's brother, Terse Toku. The bird fell ill and was brought to him when it was close to death so that he could give it a blessing. The Karmapa placed the bird in Toku Orjin's hand, at which point it collapsed, dead, but it then quickly stood up again and remained standing for three hours. The Karmapa's attendants explained to Toku Orjin that the birds that die in the Karmapa's presence routinely stand in samadhi after death. From summer 1947 to the end of 1948, the Karmapa made a tour of Nepal, Sikkim, and India. He was welcomed in Nepal by the King Tribhuvan Bir Bikram Shah, visiting Bodhanath Swayambhunath and Parping, the holy site on the edge of the Kathmandu Valley where the Yang Lesho Cave is located. The King of Bhutan and the King of Sikkim, Tashi Namgyal, both sent guides who accompanied his entourage. They first visited Lumbini before crossing into India and making their way to Bodhgaya and other sites associated with the life of the Buddha. Traveling north, he stopped in Sikkim and gave transmissions to the king, and then to Tsopema. From there, he returned to Tibet, circumambulating Mount Kailash three times before making their way back to Tsurpu. In the summer of 1949, the second Jamgong Kongshul transmitted the Treasury of Revelations at Tsurpu, an event that took seven months to complete. As Toku Orjin relates his memoirs, the Karmapa at this time requested a transmission of one of Chogyal Lingpa's treasures, the three sections of Dzogchen. The Karmapa had already received the complete treasure revelations of Chogyal Lingpa, but Tentral and the second Kongtral, who had transmitted it to him, had themselves not received the six volumes of the three sections of Dzogchen when they had received it from Samten Gyatso. The Kamapa therefore lacked the complete transmission, and thus he insisted Toku Orjin, who was one of the few men alive who possessed the full transmission, give it to him when they met at Serpu. Toku Orjin was reticent, unwilling to place himself on a throne above the Karmapa, as would have been necessary, but he ultimately relented. Having received the full transmission in 1953, the Karmapa gave the new treasures of Chogyam Lingpa to Minling Chung Rinpoche, Nangwang Chodrak, whom Kongchul identified as the head of Mindraling Monastery at the time. Religious life continued in the Lhasa area, largely unimpeded during the early years of the Chinese takeover of Tibet, albeit with considerable trepidation. In 1951, the Karmapa performed the Black Hat Ceremony once again for the Dalai Lama, who reciprocated in 1952 with transmissions of various Kadam and Geluk teachings. During a second visit to Lhasa in early 1954 for a Kalachakra empowerment, he stayed at the home of Yom Rigden Daki Dekyong, the wife of the 15th Karmapa and the mother of the second Jamgong Kongchul. According to the tradition, she was also the mother of the 11th Shamar, who went unrecognized due to the Tibetan government's ban on the incarnation following the treasonous activity of the 10th Shamar, Chodrup Gyatso. It was while there in early 1954 that the Karmapa learned of the death of his teacher, the second Jamgong Kongchul Rinpoche. 
Tuku Orgyan relates how the Karmapa's attendants were initially too frightened to relay the terrible news, and only did so after Tuku Orgyan threatened them. On learning that his beloved teacher had passed away, the Karmapa wept openly, bemoaning, as Tuku Orgyan reported, that beings of this time do not have the merit to keep such a great master alive. In 1954, the Karmapa accompanied the 14th Dalai Lama to Beijing to meet with Mao Zedong. The Karmapa was one of several hundreds of other lamas in the entourage invited to Beijing to represent Tibet at the inaugural National People's Conference and to initiate the establishment of the Tibetan Autonomous Region. It was during this visit, designed to convince the Dalai Lama to accept Chinese sovereignty over Tibet, that Mao Zedong famously whispered into the Dalai Lama's ear, Of course religion is poison. The Dalai Lama requested the Karmapa to stop over for some time and come to gather information on the situation there under communist occupation. While in China, the Karmapa had consulted with Bo Gongkar Rinpoche on the birth of the Situ, who had passed away in 1952, and determined the location of his rebirth, the 12th Situ, Pema Donyo Ninje. During his visit in 1955, he supervised his enthronement at Pelpong. It was en route to Beijing that the Karmapa is said to have first decided that his nephew Mipam Chokilodro was the current incarnation of the Shamar line. Back in Tibet, in late 1955, the Karmapa welcomed the Dalai Lama to Serpu for several weeks of festivals and exchange of teachings, during which the Karmapa performed the Black Hat Ceremony. According to disciples of the 14th Shamar, during this time the Karmapa requested the Dalai Lama to lift the ban on the Shamar incarnations. Although the Dalai Lama gave his personal approval, the matter was not resolved for another decade, and only in 1964 did the Karmapa convince the Dalai Lama to allow him to enthrone him as the 14th Shamar. In Lhasa, the Karmapa continued to serve the Dalai Lama in official capacities, acting as a liaison between the Tibetan government and the communist regime, attending meetings on his behalf of the Preparatory Committee for the Autonomous Region of Tibet and Lhasa, and visiting Chamdo in 1956 to mediate between Kampa Liberation Militias and the Chinese Army. In 1956, the Karmapa, along with scores of other lamas, made his way to Bodhgaya for the 25th hundredth Buddha Jayanti, celebrating the birth of the Buddha. The Karmapa traveled down to India via Druk Dechen Chokor in Nepal, and after touring the sacred Buddhist sites of India, he returned to Tibet via Sikkim. On his way, he laid over in Kalimpong, where he met with the Bhutanese queen Ashi Kencho Choni Wangmo, most popularly known as Ashi Wangmo, who promised support in Bhutan were he to go settle there. In Sikkim, the king welcomed the Karmapa at a banquet in which he met the Sakya Tritsin, Nangwang Kunga Tekchen Pelbar. The Karmapa visited one of the three monasteries established there by the 12th Karmapa, Changchub Dorje, named Patong, but declined an invitation to visit another, Rumtek. The Karmapa is said to have stated that he would visit when he needed to. Only a few years later, he would make Rumtek his seat in exile. By this point, the Karmapa was beginning to prepare to leave Tibet. In 1956 or 1957, he sent Kalu Rinpoche to Bhutan to begin laying the foundation for a possible residence there, and he sent precious items to India concealed in carpets. Kalu had arrived at Serpu in 1955, having fled the communist forces in Kham, like so many other lamas of the region. The next few years were a time of increased confusion and movement in Tibet. As thousands of refugees from Kham began pouring into Lhasa, the ceasefire that the Karmapa had helped broker in 1956 collapsed in Chamdo, and fighting there was brutal. Shechen Kongshu Pema Drime, the 12th Situ, Dilgo Kense, 
Kensei Choki Lodro, the third Beru Kensei, and the ninth Sangye Nempa, Gelek Drepe Nima, all arrived at Serpu. They debated their next moves even as they assisted the Karmapa in construction projects, such as a line of eight new stupas at Serpu and a renovation of Marpa's house in Lodrak. The Karmapa received the transmission of Longchenpa's seven treasuries from Zechen Kongtrol, and he identified two new incarnations, the third Jamgong Kongtrol, Lodro Choki Sengye, and the twelfth Serpu Gelseb, Drakpa Tempe Yarpel. Having already sent the elderly Kalu Rinpoche to Bhutan, the Karmapa now sent several lamas to India. The Jamgong Kongtrol and Ninth Sangje Nempa went to Kalimpong to live with relatives, and Situ had gone to Bhutan with Kalu Rinpoche. Finally, on March 13, 1959, on the fourth day of the Tibetan Earth Pig year, the Karmapa left Serpu for Bhutan, only a few days before the Dalai Lama himself left Lhasa on March 17th. The Karmapa sent a caravan of yak ahead of him carrying out as many religious relics and treasures from the monastery as he could. In the company there were 160 people, among them his brother, the Dzogchen Panlap, his nephew, the young Shamar, Gyeltsup, and the wife of the 15th Karmapa. Three weeks after leaving Serpu, they arrived in Lodrok, and the Karmapa performed a Milarepa empowerment at Sekar Gutog, the tower that Milarepa had built for Marpa. They crossed into Bhutan via the Monla Garchong Pass, 19,855 feet, in advance of a massive snowfall that allowed them to escape a Chinese military expedition that had sent out to follow them. Twenty-one days after leaving Serpu, they arrived in Bumtong, Bhutan, where they were welcomed by Ashi Wangmo, Dilgo Kinsi, Kalo Rinpoche, and the young Situ. The kings of Bhutan and Sikkim had both extended invitations to the Karmapa to reside in their countries, as did the government of India, which welcomed the Dalai Lama and the exiled government of Tibet. After conferring with a representative of the king of the still-independent Sikkim, the Karmapa decided to establish his seat in exile there at Rumtek, 20 miles outside of the capital, Gongtong. Rumtek Monastery was first established in the late 18th century by the 12th Karmapa and the 4th King of Sikkim, Girmin Yamgel, who had traveled to Tibet and had met with the Karmapa at Serpu. In 1959, it consisted of just a small central temple and a collection of wood-frame huts. For several years, as the community absorbed more and more refugees, the Kamapa supervised the rebuilding and expansion of the monastery, breaking ground in January 1963 for a new large temple and completing it in February 1966. The monastery, previously named Karma Tupten Chokorling, was now given the name Shedrup Chokorling. The religious treasures that the Karmapa had brought from Serpu were installed and reconsecrated, and the ritual calendar from Serpu was inaugurated. Among the main tutors at the monastery were the ninth Kenchen Trangu Rinpoche, Karma Lodro Ringlok Mawe Senge. The Karmapa was a leader in establishing Tibetan communities in exile, not only by building monasteries and training young lamas to continue Tibetan religious traditions, but in gathering and distributing resources for the destitute Tibetans. He also repeatedly performed public rituals around which the exile community could coalesce. In 1961, he toured the Tibetan refugee camps in Nepal, India, and Bhutan, and performed the Black Hat Ceremony at Bodhanath Stupa. During the trip, he met with the Indian Prime Minister, Nehru, in Delhi, and the Bhutanese royal family in Timpu. At Rumtek, the Karmapa supervised the education of young Karmakagji Tukus, 
four of whom would later be tasked with searching for his reincarnation, the third Jamgong Kongshu, the twelfth Situ, the fourteenth Shamar, and the twelfth Serpu Gyaltsab, all of whom were below the age of ten. During this period, the Karmapa formally enthroned the young Situ and Jamgong Kongshu, and he formally recognized his nephew as the fourteenth Sharmapa, finally ending the nearly two hundred year ban on the incarnation line. Over the course of the 1960s and 1970s, the Karmapa translated to these and other young lamas the major scriptural collections of the Karma Kagyu tradition. He transmitted the treasury of Kagyu Tantra, followed shortly after by the transmission of the treasury of instructions, Kongtrul's collected works, the classic Kagyu compositions on Mahamudra of the 7th and 9th Karmapas. In 1971, the Karmapa transmitted the treasury of knowledge and the treasury of Kagyu Tantra a second time. The Karmapa maintained an active schedule of travel across the Buddhist communities of the Himalayan region, enjoying the patronage of multiple royal families and ministering to the religious and material needs of the thousands of disciples. In 1967, he made a second regional tour, visiting Ladakh, performing the Black Hat Ceremony in a field outside of Leh for a crowd of thousands and blessing the site of the region's first Karma Kagyu monastery, Karma Dripgyu Choling where construction began in 1975. He stopped over at Dharamsala to where the Dalai Lama gave him transmission for Tsongkhapa's famous poem, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, and then to Tilokpur, reported to be the practice site of Tilopa. Freda Bedi, an English disciple of the Karmapa, who had then been ordained and was known as Sister Palmo, had established a convent there, which he blessed and named Karma Dripgyu Targe Ling, in 1972, Sister Palmo would travel to Taiwan to receive full bhikshuni ordination, which Tibetan Buddhist leadership, despite pressure from the Tibetan and non-Tibetan activists, continues to deny women. In Tashijong, he blessed the site of the new Kampagar Monastery. The original Kampagar is a major Drukpa Kagyu monastery in Kham that was founded by the 4th Kamchul Rinpoche, Tenzin Choki Nima. He gave vows to two young Tokus and 30 other young men and returned to Rumtek via Dorjiling, where he visited with Chachro Rinpoche, Sangji Dorje. The Kamapa had made two trips to Bhutan in 1967 and 1969. He first visited Takstong and Paro and blessed the new statue of Padmasambhava there. During his visit, King Jigme Dorji Wangchuk gave the Kamapa his summer palace in Bumtong, Tashi Choling, to convert into a monastery and monastic college. The royal family made other gifts as well, including three other temples, a fleet of trucks and jeeps, and several commercial properties in Timpu to help support the Karmapa's activities. The Karmapa returned to Bhutan in 1969 to consecrate the ground of a new building at Tashi Choling. Over the course of three months there, he gave the transmission of Jonggong Kongchul's collected works, knowing one thing which liberates all, a collection of empowerments into the main tantric deities compiled by the ninth Karmapa the six dharmas of Naropa, and teachings on Mahamudra. According to Bosch, the Karmapa fell seriously ill during the ceremony, but refused to leave for treatment, evidence of his dedication to his disciples. Over the winter of 1969 and 70, the Karmapa spent several months in Nepal, celebrating the Tibetan New Year at Swayambu, where he initiated the renovation of the Sri Karma Raja Mahavihara, a monastery that had been established by the 4th Shamar. Two years later, the Kamapa was back in Bhutan for the funeral of the Bhutanese king Jigme Dorji Wangchuk, who had died while traveling in Kenya. 
Following the cremation, the Karmapa went on pilgrimage in India and in 1972 met with the Indian yoga master Swami Muktananda. Freda Bendy and her friend Didi Contractor, who was a disciple of Muktananda, arranged the visit. The 14th Shamar and the Dzogchen Panlap accompanied him. He returned to Bhutan in June 1974 for the coronation of the fourth king, Jigme Sengye Wangchuk. Sister Palmo was the first of many Western disciples of the Karmapa. In 1967, he had ordained Jetsanma Tenzin Palmo, a young British woman who was the student of Kamcho Rinpoche and who would later receive full bhikshuni vows in Taiwan and go on to become a renowned practitioner. The Karmapa predicted that many Western women and men would follow her in taking robes and told her that to pave the way, she must never disrobe. His trip to Nepal in the winter of 1969 and 70 introduced him to several people who would become significant teachers in the Karmakaju tradition in the West. They included Soltrum Alioni, who had earlier studied with Trungpa Rinpoche and who took ordination vows with the Karmapa in 1970 in Bodhgaya, and Ole and Hanna Naidal, a married couple from Denmark. The Karmapa took Ole Naidal so warmly that he once jumped on Naidal's back to be carried while they were walking down the long, steep steps to Swayambhunath Stupa. In 1968, Chogyam Trumpa had visited Rumtek while on a trip to Bhutan and described his impressions of England. A few Tibetan lamas had made the journey to the west by this point, and the Karmapa depended on Trungpa for information. In 1971, the fourth Karma Trinli Rinpoche moved to Ontario, Canada, to minister to a group of Tibetans settling there, and in 1973, the Karmapa sent Kalu Rinpoche on a tour of America and Europe. These three lamas' activities laid the groundwork for the Karmapa's first tour of Europe and North America from September 1974 to February 1975. The tour was chiefly organized and sponsored by Chogyam Trumpa, whose unorthodox teaching methods apparently caused the Karmapa some concern. The Karmapa had first sent Freda Bedi to investigate Trumpa's activity. Until she reported back, he could not be persuaded to go. The tour began in London. The Karmapa was accompanied by over 20 people, including Sister Palmo and the third Bardor Toku. The following day, the Karmapa flew to New York. Chogyam Trumpa and his community arranged the welcome and the various legs of the journey through America, meticulously planning each detail so as to serve the Karmapa in high style. Kalu Rinpoche was also in New York as part of the welcome. He first stayed in the Long Island house of Dr. C.T. Shen, an active sponsor of Buddhist activity in the United States and Taiwan. Dr. Shen donated a piece of land in Carmel, New York, and would later support the purchase of land in Woodstock and the construction of the Karma Trayana Dharma Chakra, which serves as the Karmapa's seat in North America. In New York City, the Karmapa toured the United Nations, went to the observation deck at the Empire State Building, and spent a long morning at the Bronx Zoo. On September 21, 1974, he performed the Black Hat Ceremony in the Hammerstein Ballroom on 34th Street, followed by an empowerment for Trungpa students at their center in the city. Knowing of the Karmapa's love of birds, students would give them to him, and from the very beginning he gathered a considerable airy along his way. The cages would travel on the airplanes and occasionally had to be snuck across international borders. From New York, the Karmapa went north to Vermont, to Trungpa's center in Barnett. The Karmapa changed its name from the Tale of the Tiger to Karme Choling. Then he flew to Ann Arbor, Michigan to meet with Swami Muktananda, who was there establishing an ashram and performed the Black Hat Ceremony. 
In Boulder, he publicly affirmed Trungpa's place in the Karmakagju lineage, an act that strengthened Trungpa's ties to the tradition and dispelled concerns about his unorthodox methods of teaching and behavior. The Karmapa performed the Black Hat ceremony, and he gave a Mahakala initiation to some of Trungpa's senior students, some of the earliest tantric empowerments the community received. He again performed the Black Hat ceremony in Denver and visited Trungpa's Rocky Mountain Dharma Center, now known as the Shambhala Mountain Center, where he blessed the site of the future Dharmakaya Stupa. The Karmapa next made a visit to the Hopi Nation, where he had sent Sister Palmo in February 1974 to prepare for his arrival. The Karmapa's interest in the Native American people had been sparked years earlier, and in fact, according to his driver, during the first American visit, his main goal of the North American journey was to encounter the Hopi people in Arizona, whom he considered to be models of peaceful living. The Karmapa arrived a day early, but was nevertheless warmly welcomed by the elderly chief Ned Nayatawe and his wife Nerne. While they gave the Karmapa a tour of their village and compared customs and beliefs, the chief explained that they were experiencing a serious drought. The Karmapa is said to have replied, Don't worry, I'll take care of it, and to have performed rainmaking rituals in his jeep as they drove away. By the time they reached their motel, dark clouds had filled the sky and a drenching rain was following. That night he attended a large banquet for Navajo and Hopi tribal elders, at which he gave an Avalokiteshvara empowerment. The following day he visited a Hopi medicine woman and the famous Hopi cultural activist White Bear, and then boarded a plane to California. Bausch describes how, in the Phoenix airport, the Karmapa released the birds people had given him for them to stretch their wings. When boarding was announced, he clapped his hands and they all returned to their cages. The Karmapa remained in San Francisco for five days, performing the Black Hat Ceremony for Thousands at Fort Mason, the culmination of a ten-day festival that had been organized by Trunkba's Dharmadhatu Center. Among the celebrities there were Allen Ginsberg, who had first met Karmapa in Rumtech in 1962, poet Ann Waldman, and Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. According to Bosch, in both 1962 and again in San Francisco in 1974, Allen Ginsberg had asked the Karmapa whether psychedelic drugs could be part of a valid spiritual path, and both times Karmapa answered in the negative, stating that drugs create an artificial sense of higher consciousness that is only achieved in earnest through meditation practice. While in San Francisco, the Karmapa toured the zoo and gave a teaching on freedom at Tartong Tulku Center. From San Francisco, the Karmapa flew to Canada to minister to the Tibetan refugee communities in Vancouver and Toronto. He was first met in Vancouver by Kala Rinpoche, who had opened a center there in 1972, Kagju Kunchob Choling. This was Kala Rinpoche's first center in the West and served as his seat in North America. During the five-day visit, Kala Rinpoche and Karmapa flew in a small Cessna with Kala Rinpoche's disciple, translator and biographer Ken McLeod. They flew circles around the Salt Spring Island, where Kala Rinpoche would later establish a retreat center, Kunzong Dichen Oseling. The lieutenant governor of British Columbia, Walter Stewart Owen, brought the Karmapa to a whale show in which he was delighted to be thoroughly soaked. He performed the Black Hat Ceremony on October 23rd in downtown Vancouver. The final leg of the North American tour was Toronto, where he was hosted by Karma Trinley Rinpoche and Namgyal Rinpoche. From Toronto, the Karmapa flew to Glasgow to begin on November 12th, a three-month tour of Europe. He performed the Black Hat Ceremony in each city he visited. He spent close to a month in the United Kingdom. 
He first visited Glasgow and then nearby Samyeling and then Edinburgh, where the famous diplomat and Tibet scholar Hugh Richardson attended the Black Hat ceremony. Richardson, while stationed in Lhasa, had visited the Karmapa multiple times at Serpu. To smaller groups of practitioners, he gave select tantric empowerments, such as Hevadra and Tara at Samye Ling and Vajra Yogini at Chime Rinpoche Center in Essex. On November 29th in Essex, he ordained the American teacher Pema Chodron, possibly the first time a Tibetan ordination ceremony had been held in Britain. Pema Chodron received full ordination in Hong Kong in 1981. On December 10th, the Karmapa arrived in Oslo, welcomed by Ole and Hanna Nydal, who drove him around the Norwegian and Swedish countryside in their Volkswagen van, and then south to Denmark, Germany, Holland, and Belgium. On January 8, 1974, the Karmapa arrived in Paris for the grandest event of the European tour, a black hat ceremony in a ballroom at the Sheraton Hotel, which was attended by several thousand people and was opened by the famous film director Arnaud Desjardins. Some 500 people requested refuge. While in Paris, the Karmapa resided at Carlo Rinpoche Center Cagu-Zong, and it was at this time that he encountered one of his major patrons in France, Jean-Louis Massoubre, a French politician and philosopher whose youngest son, Ananda, was later recognized as an incarnation of Karma Nawan Trenle Kakyab. On January 17, 1975, the Karmapa met with Pope Paul VI, a visit organized by Namkai Norbu, with assistance of students of Akong Rinpoche, following a similar meeting between the Pope and Kala Rinpoche four years earlier. The Pope, known for his ecumenical attitude, embodied the Second Vatican Council of 1965, welcomed the Karmapa with a speech that expressed admiration for Buddhism and hope for further interfaith meetings. As in other cities, the Karmapa found his way to a pet shop to gather more birds. After another tour of France, the Karmapa visited the sizable Tibetan community in Ricken, Switzerland, and then on February 9, 1975, returned to India. Less than two years after his first journey to the West, the Karmapa returned to North America and Europe. He spent time in Hawaii, San Francisco, New York, Boston, Vermont, and Boulder. The Karmapa visited a dozen separate centers in Canada, beginning March 1978. Bosch describes how many of his visits included meetings with members of the First Nations people, including at Kala Rinpoche's new retreat center at Salt Springs Island near Vancouver, an area which the Karmapa declared was under the protection of a local fire god. The Karmapa also encountered Greenpeace activist Bob Hunter and blessed his plans to hire a new ship to stop Japanese whale hunters. On June 10, 1977, the Karmapa arrived in Paris, where he stayed for a week at Kala Rinpoche's center Kagyu-Zong, before moving on to Dagbo Kagyu-Ling in Dordon. The site was yet to be developed, although Lama Gendon and Jigme Rinpoche had repaired the rung-down farmhouse in preparation for the visit. He gave a black hat ceremony there, and then continued to centers in Belgium, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, Great Britain, and Greece, all in the course of six months. He returned to Dordogne at the end of October for three weeks, during which time the donation of the land was finalized. Wherever the Karmapa went in Europe, he connected with the people and places in remarkable ways, inspiring individuals who had no previous contact with Buddhism and invigorating nation centers to flourish. He also continued to accumulate birds. 
Bosch reports that by the end of his 15-month tour of North America and Europe, he had 18 cages with 270 birds. Ken Holmes, who drove the Karmapa in Paris, tells of an afternoon bird shopping. The Karmapa was not interested in the shops Holmes brought him to, and back in the car, he gave Holmes a series of directions to an unknown neighborhood that had Holmes thinking the Karmapa was playing a practical joke on him. Finally, at the entrance to a cul-de-sac, the Karmapa exited the car and walked into a small pet shop to purchase several birds. Even as the Karmapa was active in spreading the Karmakagyu in the West, he was also building new monasteries and schools in India. He was also active in printing Buddhist scriptures. In the last five years of his life, the Karmapa published the Dege Kangyur and Tengjur. Between 1976 and 1979, he printed 500 copies of the Kangyur, which are the complete Tibetan scriptures of the Buddhist Sutra and Tantra, in 103 volumes. These were from the earliest printings of the 1733 Dege blocks, and therefore of considerable scholarly as well as religious value. These projects were done with the sponsorship of Dr. C.T. Shen and the assistance of E. Jean Smith. In 1967, Tulku Urjin completed a monastery in Bodhnat, Nepal, in which he named Kanyang Shedrabling. He invited the Karmapa to dedicate the buildings and to give the transmission of the treasury of Kagyu Tantra to scores of young lamas, including the Third Kongtrul, the Gelsab Shamar, and Situ incarnations. The king of Nepal attended the consecration. While in Nepal, the Karmapa also visited the monastery at Swayambunat Kamaraja Mahavihara Monastery, which served as his seat in the country in which the 10th Shamar would manage beginning 1979, and he went to Lumbini to bless the 18th Chogye Trichin, Tupten Lekshe Gyatso's new monastery. The Karmapa initiated the construction of several educational institutions, including the Karmapa International Buddhist Institute in Delhi. The Karmapa laid the first foundation stone on June 8, 1979, and Sharmapa Rinpoche inaugurated and completed the building in 1990. In 1978, he erected a building for a monastic college, Karme Jamyong Kong Institute, and the following year he initiated the first three-year retreat at the new Samten Ling Retreat Center above Rumtek. He also initiated the construction of a nunnery above Rumtek named Karme Chokor Dechen Ling, a project for which he had requested Grace McLeod to take charge. The buildings were completed in 1985. In the early morning of the ceremony to lay the first stone at the Karmapa International Buddhist Institute, the Karmapa was with Shamar in a hotel room and suddenly began vomiting blood. He insisted on proceeding with the event, but he collapsed that evening and was taken to a hospital in Delhi. There he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and sections of his stomach were removed. Despite his tenuous health, less than a year later, in May 1980, the Karmapa once again flew to North America. He would not have the physical strength to return to Europe, save for a brief stopover in London, where he gave the Black Crown Ceremony for patrons in Kagyu Lamas. He spent two weeks in New York undergoing medical tests, and then went to the site of what would become the Karma Triyana Dharma Chakra to perform a black hat ceremony under a large tent by the old hotel. From New York, the Karmapa flew to Colorado. In Boulder, he blessed the new site of Trunkpa's Naropa Institute. In June, while in Boulder, the Karmapa had a dream in which he saw a flag, in yellow and blue sides swirling to each other. This had become an emblem of the Karmakagyu tradition, known as the Dream Banner, or Namken Gyaldar, the victorious flag of the Buddha's wisdom. The Karmapa announced that wherever this banner is flown, the Dharma will flourish. 
despite his ill health and the occasional appearance of Bell's palsy, a condition that causes temporary stiffening or drooping of the muscles of the face, his schedule was full. After a visit to California, the Karmapa again returned to Woodstock to consecrate the land for the construction of a monastery. He was visited there by Dejong Rinpoche and Dujum Rinpoche. He was able to visit his old friend Swami Muktananda at his center in South Fallsburg, New York. He visited New York City, Washington, D.C., and the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. In Burlington, Vermont, he gave the Black Hat Ceremony in the University of Vermont's Ira Allen Chapel and stayed again at Trungpa Center, Karma Choling. In Toronto, he met with the Dalai Lama, who was himself on his first North American tour. After stops in Chicago and Hawaii, having visited 74 Dharma centers, he departed for East Asia. He visited Kagyu centers in the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Burma before returning to India. The Karmapa's health continued to deteriorate. Bosch documents the wildly varied examination results the Karmapa had received over the final few years of his life, during which doctors were confused to find the Karmapa at ease in the midst of what they considered severe ailments, only to have all signs of the disease gone several days later. <laughs> The Karmapa maintained that as long as his work was not done, he would remain in his body, but ultimately, perhaps because he had successfully laid down a strong foundation for the global spread of the Karmakagyu tradition, his illness consumed his body. In August 1981, his doctors urged a return to the hospital. After vomiting blood again in the following month, the Karmapa agreed to fly to Hong Kong for treatment. With the intervention of the Buddhist community, the Karmapa was given rooms reserved for the British governor of the territory. Kailu Rinpoche, Dujan Rinpoche, Kongchul, Shamar, and other lamas provided constant attendance. A surgery revealed that the Karmapa's cancer had spread throughout his body, and that intervention was no longer warranted. He also developed pneumonia. The Karmapa's cook at Rumtek, the Danish nun Ani Ea, came to Hong Kong, and she suggested contacting Dwight McKee, an American doctor known for his cancer treatment. The Kamapa flew to Chicago via Japan and Seattle, and on October 19, 1981, he was admitted to the American International Hospital in Zion, Illinois, now known as the Cancer Treatment Center of America. Dr. Mitchell Levy, the personal physician to Trungpa Rinpoche, flew to Chicago to consult. Because of insufficient attention to the Karmapa's diabetes during the trip, his kidneys were failing and he underwent dialysis. This resulted in a bacterial infection that led to sepsis and the need for a blood plasma exchange, a procedure only recently developed. Despite these crises, all reports state that the Karmapa remained alert and good-natured, laughing at the setbacks and expressing concern for the hospital staff. He alternated between being on the verge of death and enjoying stable conditions, during which he sat up and conversed with the staff and his entourage. On November 3rd, the Karmapa's pneumonia reached the point that his lungs began to fail, and on November 5th, he suffered a heart attack at around 9 in the evening. His heart and breathing stopped and restarted several times before finally ceasing at 11.30 in the evening. The Karmapa's body remained in the hospital for three days, reportedly exhibiting signs of tukdam, the Tibetan after-death meditation in which the body remains warm while the consciousness slowly exits. On November 8th, permission was given to repatriate the Karmapa's remains to India. Stopovers were arranged in New York and London, where Shamar joined the entourage, and then a two-day layover in Delhi at the Sikkim house. 
His body was then flown to the Bagdoga Airport in West Bengal to Gangtok via helicopter and to Rumtek via truck. Following the traditional 49-day bardo rites, the Karmapa was cremated on December 20, 1981, at the center of a ceremonial pyre shaped like a mandala. The Karmapa's four young disciples, Kongtrul, Situ, Shamar, and Gyalsab, each presided over a direction, as did Bokar Rinpoche and Karlo Rinpoche. At one point, a relic emerged which Karlo Rinpoche identified as the Karmapa's heart. He instructed that it be placed into a silver bowl, Multiple other miracles were reported by participants and observers. In 2016, the Karmapas collected writings were published in three volumes in Dharamsala. The 16th Karmapas legacy has been broad and lasting, with thriving institutions that he sponsored or blessed, and disciples who are carrying on the tradition across Asia, the Americas, and Europe. And in 1985, the 17th Karmapa, Orgyan Trinli Dorje, was recognized by Situ Rinpoche and His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and the 17th Karmapa is an astounding human being who speaks multiple languages fluently, is a brilliant author, poet, artist, orator, and is undoubtedly a continuation of the Buddha activity of the 16th. So now for the real good part of this podcast, which is the miraculous accounts of Western and Eastern disciples who encountered the 16th Karmapa and saw for themselves what this guy was capable of doing. So now that we have the overview, we can check out some of the particulars about the miraculous 16th. And for his early years, I want to draw from Toku Urjin Rinpoche's biography, Blazing Splendor, that accounts many of his interactions with the 16th Karmapa. From Chapter 21, The Young Karmapa Another major influence early in my life was the 16th Karmapa, Rigpe Dorje. I first met him in East Tibet in Tanda Gompa. I was young at the time, and Samtin Gyaltso brought me along as his attendant. I didn't become close to the Karmapa then. He just knew me as the Tuku who was with Samtin Gyaltso. When the Karmapa was young, he was pretty strong-headed. You couldn't force him to study, and he was very playful. Only Samtin Gyaltso could intimidate him enough to get him to pursue his studies. For that reason, the Karmapa received quite a few teachings from Samtin Gyatso. They later became very close. After the governor of Dege was released by the communists and returned to power, the feeling was that it was now safe for the Karmapa to visit there. He visited many places along the way, including various monasteries in Nangchen that were under royal patronage. He was invited to Lachab as well, and before he proceeded to the famous Dilyat Gompa, my Songsar relatives also hosted him and his party. On this trip, the Karmapa had been given some small white abras, a local type of mouse hair. Sometimes people would keep an abra as a pet, but only in a box, otherwise they would run off. When I was young, I had two or three of them, but they all ran away. They are not easy to hold on to either, and it was almost certain that if you took them out of the box, you would lose them. But our wish-fulfilling jewel, the Karmapa, refused to imprison his pets in a box, so he had five or six abras running free in his tent. I tried to warn him, wish-fulfilling jewel, you have to keep them caged. Mine took off as fast as they could. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter, he said. Let them all out. The abras darted around his tent. It looked to me as though they were circumambulating him, and they didn't even seem to mind when he picked them up. Though the tent was open, they would stay near him. Not a single one ever seemed to want to escape. 
One day, the Karmapa decided to dye his abras yellow and red. They seemed entranced by him, and so when he decided to change their coat to a different color, they just sat still and let him do it. Abras usually have a light-colored fur, and I was worried that if the ones the Karmapa had dyed were set free again, the other abras might attack them, but that never happened. Not one of them minded when he dipped them in water to wash the dye off. I must say, the way the young Karmapa handled the abras impressed me deeply. So the chapter continues on. At Surmang, I had the chance to see the Karmapa's horse. This horse was quite unusual, known to give blessings by placing one of its hooves on people's heads. People would stand in a line, and as the horse touched their head, it made a sound that, with a bit of imagination, sounded like hong, 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 which is a sacred Buddhist syllable. Most people get touched very lightly, but once in a while, someone got whacked. Of course, the horse didn't speak, but it made a sound each time it touched the person's head, and many people heard the sound as Om Mani Padme Hom. I was waiting for someone to receive one of its dynamic blessings, but it didn't happen that day, and the horse was quite gentle with everyone. Many years later, I heard that one day the horse just sat down on its hindquarters and passed away, and then continued sitting there. Pretty amazing, would you agree? Once in a while, the Karmapa would reveal his clear perception of the death and rebirth of beings. One time, on a journey north, some villagers offered the Karmapa a horse. After receiving the horse, the Karmapa turned to his general secretary and said, This horse is the rebirth of your father. The secretary was very upset and asked the Karmapa if he could do something. The Karmapa replied, What do you want me to do? He's a horse. <laughs> He's already taken rebirth and there he is. Then please give the horse to me and I will take care of it myself, the secretary pleaded. No one will ride it. For two years, the secretary kept the horse, fed it and groomed it, and took the very best care of it until the horse passed away. On another journey, the Karmapa was passing through a valley with a following of about 90 horsemen, when all of a sudden a kid goat broke away from its flock. It ran after the Karmapa as best it could, bleeding and trying to keep up. Our wish-fulfilling jewel turned to look and then said to his servant, Take the kid back to the village we just came through, find its owner, and ask him to give it to me. The servant took the kid, which had a colored string around its neck, under his arm and rode back to the village. The colored string made it easy to identify the goat, and the servant was quickly able to find its owner, who readily agreed to offer it to the Karmapa. The goat in tow, he caught up with the Karmapa's traveling party by nightfall. He brought the kid to the Karmapa and asked, Wish-fulfilling jewel, why are you so interested in this goat? Do you remember that orphan who was given to me some years ago and recently died? The Karmapa replied, That's him, poor guy. Somehow he must have recognized me, and unable to bear to be separated again, he ran after me bleeding at the top of his voice. I'll keep him for a while. For the rest of the journey back to Serpu, the Karmapa kept the small goat as a pet. From Chapter 30, At Serpu with the Karmapa Many extraordinary things happened in the company of the Karmapa. For example, he kept hundreds of birds. Karse Kongshul had given him a bird with an extremely melodious voice, which was very dear to him. When the bird got sick, he kept it alone in a special room. One day he was told that the bird was dying, and he asked that it be brought to him. The bird was placed on the table before him. This bird needs a special blessing, he said. 
so he took a small vessel with mustard seed and made his usual chant for dispelling obstacles as he threw some of the grains on the bird. Suddenly he said, There's nothing more to do. It is dying. No blessing can prevent it. Then he turned to me, saying, Pick it up and hold it in your hand. The bird was still alive, and it sat there in my palm, with one eye half open. But soon I saw its head slump and then its wings. But strangely enough, the bird then straightened back up and simply sat there. An attendant whispered, It's in Samadhi. I didn't want to disturb it, so I asked him to put it on the table. The attendant seemed used to handling birds in this state, because he didn't disturb it as he put the bird down. Somewhat astonished, I commented to the attendant, How remarkable! A bird that sits up straight right after death. That's nothing special. They all do it, he replied matter-of-factly. A second attendant chimed in. Every single bird from the Karmapa's aviary that dies sits up for a while after death, but we're so used to this, it's ceased to amaze us. When birds die, I objected, they keel over and fall on their branch to the ground, and they don't keep sitting. Well, when the Karmapa is around, this is what they do, replied the attendant, but you're right. When he's away, they die the normal way. At this point, everyone had arrived for dinner, and I had to sit down, but I couldn't help keeping my eye on the bird while we ate. Halfway through the dinner, its right wing slumped, and soon after, the left followed. An attendant whispered, Wish-fulfilling jewel, it seems the samadhi is about to finish. The Karmapa paid no attention and kept eating. Even when the bird finally keeled over, I looked at my watch. Approximately three hours had gone by. No matter what the attendant said, I was still pretty amazed because I saw it die in my hands. Most people probably wouldn't believe this unless they saw it with their own eyes. The Kamapa was very fond of dogs as well, and he had several Pekingese that, I was told, also died sitting up with their forelegs parallel. In short, the Kamapa was an incredible human being. From Chapter 38, The Hearing Lineage, from Bomta Kempo While a wish-fulfilling jewel was performing the Black Crown Ceremony in Bhutan, one day Bomta Kempo came to attend. He had great difficulty walking at this point, but he forced himself to walk all the way. I need to meet the one who was Avalokiteshvara in person at least once, he said. I have not yet had the chance to meet him. My background is Sakya, but he is the one in whom I have the deepest faith. The Karmapa had traveled there with a large following. At the ceremonies, many great tulkus and lamas were seated in the front row, including Shamar, Situ, Jamgon, and Pawo Rinpoches. I sat in the opposite row with Tarangu Rinpoche. At one point, during a break in the ceremony, I saw that the Karmapa had tears in his eyes. I went over to inquire what the matter might be. He leaned toward me so that no one else could hear. In my dreams last night, I saw that the king of Bhutan is near the end of his life. There is nothing to be done. He had been a great benefactor and quite close to me, so I feel saddened. The Kamapa treated Bomte Kempo with great affection, and after the ceremony he said to me, Tell him to stay. I would like to have lunch with him. After lunch when Bomte Kempo had departed, I saw that the Kamapa again had tears in his eyes. What's the matter, Rinpoche? I had asked. The merit and life are running out, was all he said. The king passed away not long after, and remember he passed away suddenly on a trip to Kenya. And it was barely two months before the great Kempo left his body as well. For two or three days after the Kempo passed away, there wasn't a cloud to be seen in any direction, not even a wisp. 
Dujum Rinpoche later told me that at Bomtekempo's funeral, suddenly a huge white light was seen coming from his cremation stupa. There was also a large number of relic pills found in the ashes. Having trekked over to another gompa, I was only aware that someone was being cremated, but somehow I knew it was this great master. People in the area said that they had never seen such a clear sky in their entire lives. Bomte Kempo was an astounding master. It was in Bhutan that I asked our wish-fulfilling jewel to give a name to a son I had with the girl from Nubri. The next morning, he said, a Nakpa Lama named Drogbong Sokni appeared to me wearing a white shawl and skirt. Your new son is his reincarnation. So the real impetus for this podcast about the 16th Karmapa was the Miraculous 16th Karmapa, Incredible Encounters with the Black Crown Buddha, compiled and edited by Norma Levine. And since the preview of the introduction is free online, I can give you a little bit from the beginning. So from His Holiness the 17th Karmapa, about the 16th, he says, The 16th Gyalwa Karmapa, Rangjung Rigpe Dorje, was not like other Dharma teachers. He gave very few formal Dharma teachings. Sometimes he did give the Vajrakaun ceremony, but often he would just simply sit with people and his aura was so powerful that merely by being there he touched their lives in unparalleled ways. Some of his students have told me how just to be in his presence or even outside his room would clear the fog and confusion of disturbing emotions within their minds. They described him as a majestic and magnificent spiritual king of immense stature whom everyone revered. His spiritual power was enormous. In his presence, everyone became biddable and their minds were calm. His influence as a spiritual leader extended beyond the Kagyu school. He maintained connections across all traditions and lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. In this age of degeneration, when both the world at large and the Kagyu lineage face so many difficulties and even threats to their very existence, his guidance and leadership are sorely missed. Sadly, he was only 58 years old when he passed away. He died too young. Often, I wish that he were alive today to see the fruits of his activities in the lives of his students, how they have grown and matured in their Dharma practice. Their continued diligence and commitment to practice is the greatest gift that they can offer him. In conclusion, I would like to thank Miss Levine for compiling this collection. Many of these accounts are highly personal and subjective, yet they form an important contribution to the record of the life of the work of the 16th Gawa Karmapa. He entered Parinirvana more than 30 years ago, and yet those who knew him still remember him with awe and tremble at the memory. It continues on with the introduction with Norma Levine's own commentary. It was 1967 when I first heard the name Karmapa. From his monastery in Sikkim, he was making a tour of Europe, including my hometown of Heian Wai in the Welsh borders, invited by the first Buddhists I ever met. We were told he would be touring in a big maroon bus large enough to carry his entourage of monks and menagerie of birds. The preparations required were extraordinary. Most memorable was the construction of a large wooden throne, built to exact specifications, covered in exquisite silk brocade. We were told it had to be suitable for a great spiritual king. Now picture his long maroon bus, with gold Tibetan lettering, wending its way carefully through the narrow lanes toward a farmhouse in the Black Mountains. I watched a middle-aged, broadly-built man descend regally from the gold-brocaded front seat, helped by his attendants. He paused for a long moment to look around at the welcoming group holding white offering scarves and reciting his mantra, Karmapa Chieno. 
then upwards toward the hills to the skyline, and smiled at the universe with every cell in his body. Thick clouds of juniper smoke filled the air as an offering to the great 16th Gyalwakamapa. When I met him, I was barely a Buddhist. My first and lasting impression was of a natural force, like thunder or lightning masquerading in a human body. Clearly, he was not an ordinary human being. His body seemed unlike flesh and blood. He was as pure as the elements, wind, water, earth, air, and space. A photograph taken of him a few years later would show a blur of multicolored lights instead of a solid body. It was said to indicate his realization of shunyata, or emptiness. His expression changed constantly, like the clouds shifting across the sky. Sometimes he smiled with delight like a child. Sometimes he stared wrathfully, black as thunder. The force of his presence alone brought a hushed silence. How did one talk to him, I wondered. I was struck dumb by his massive presence. The Karmapa was known as the Black Hat Lama of Tibet. The hat, which his attendant carried in a silk hat box, was a spiritual crown marking Karmapa as the Buddha of activity for the Dark Age. It is said that in another epoch, in dimension, the Karmapa was crowned by celestial enlightened women known as Dakinis. This naturally arising black crown, said to be woven from the hair of Dakinis, was always on his head, but could only be seen by the pure in heart. For the vast majority, unable to see this crown, the 15th century Chinese Emperor Yongle, a disciple of the Karmapa, made a material replica for everyone to see. During the black crown ceremony, the Karmapa places the black hat on his head and embodies the Bodhisattva of Compassion Chenrezig. It is said to plant the seed of enlightenment for those who witness it. He brought the black hat on his tour and performed the ceremony anywhere he was requested, in large private houses, squats, village halls, and even the tiny room in a Welsh farmhouse where I first witnessed it. The throne took up more than half the space in the shrine room, whose walls were already covered in sacred representations of deities on scrolls. The rest was occupied by the Karmapa's monks and their ritual instruments. To this day, none of us can comprehend how 75 people could also have sat in a room measuring 12 by 12 feet. It seemed to become a cathedral-like space. Karmapa occupied the throne completely. He had a spiritual dignity that made it his rightful seat, just as the lion proclaims his natural dominion. His eyes seemed to cover all directions and dimensions. The people crammed together, bursting out the doorway into the sitting room, the house, the black mountains, right out through space and beyond time. The impact of the Karmapa on our lives was difficult to measure, because it is impossible to pinpoint exactly what causes events to happen. We had entered his sacred mandala, in which events happened with perfect synchronicity. We had also become part of an ancient lineage of miraculous history, one of the oldest and most revered in Tibet. When the spiritual king came to my town, my life started to go in another direction, on every level, just like that. Reading an account of miracles from a Tibetan text makes it seem mythical, but if we look at the history of the Karmapas and expand our mind to understand what a Buddha is, it becomes more like sacred history. Sacred history tells us that the first Karmapa, born in 1110 CE, was known as Dusum Kimpa, or Knower of the Three Times, a name given to him because he was believed to have gone beyond the relativity of time, past, present, and future dissolved because he had achieved the highest state of meditation in which all boundaries are realized to be fabrications. His great bequest to spiritual history was his ability to recognize his own future reincarnation, 
thus establishing for the first time an infallible, continuous reincarnation lineage in which he could draw upon his clairvoyance to guide beings in the present. Since then, the Karmapas were frequently called upon to identify other reincarnate lamas. To foretell his own reincarnation, he would write a prediction letter before passing away and give it secretly to a trusted disciple to be opened at the right time. This letter would tell the time and place of his birth and the names of his parents, as well as the special natural signs that would occur. The letter is infallible proof that it is the spiritual lineage that reincarnates and not a dynastic bloodline. The Karmapas also managed to maintain their purely spiritual status against the manipulation of powerful political overlords. The fourth Karmapa was invited by the Mongolian Khan to reside with him, but he refused. Maintaining his activity was to move around. It was the fourth Karmapa, Rolpe Dorje, who started what became known as the Great Encampment, or Garchen in Tibetan, a massive nomadic caravan which carried teachings and empowerments to people in remote regions of Tibet. These encampments were integral to the activity of the Karmapa, signifying his freedom to connect with people and spread the Dharma. It was felt that to receive the full benefit of the Karmapa's blessing, people had to see his face. In its heyday during the time of the seventh Karmapa, the encampment numbered 10,000 people and contained all the facilities of a real city with education for monks and lay people, and developed a school of painting known as Karma Gadri. Even animals and beggars had a place in the encampment. People who saw it were so impressed by its extent and variety, it became known as the ornaments of the world. The encampment came to a tragic end in the time of the 10th Karmapa, Choyang Dorje, when the entire caravan of monks, nuns, and lay people were surrounded by the combined force of the Mongols under Gushri Khan and an army from central Tibet and massacred. Although some of the Karmapas were gurus to the emperors of China, they chose to be free from the constraints of politics in order to perform their spiritual activity. When the emperor of China requested the 5th Karmapa to remain with him in his court, the Karmapa declined. He decided not to use the backing of the Ming dynasty to make his sect politically dominant. Rather, he proclaimed the need for religious freedom with a multiplicity of schools, thus neatly sidestepping Chinese political strategies. Throughout their history, the Karmapas adroitly transformed every maneuver to ensnare them and use their power for political purposes into peace and harmony. They were Mahasiddhas, not power mongers, Buddhas, not empire builders. The 16th in the lineage of Karmapas was born in 1924, two years after the death of the 15th Karmapa, into an aristocratic family in East Tibet, where many of the previous Karmapas had been born. Various miraculous signs attended his birth. The sound of the Chenrezig mantra, Om Mani Padme Hom, was heard coming from his mother's womb, and on the day of his birth many rainbows appeared in the sky. All of the water in the offering bowls turned into milk. Like the Lord Buddha, the infant son took seven steps, saying, Mother, I am going away. Soon afterward, two of his heart sons, Situ Rinpoche and Jamgong Kongshul Rinpoche, recognized the child in accordance with the precise descriptions left in the prediction letter of the 15th Karmapa. In 1931, at the age of seven, he was ordained as a novice monk and taken to Palpong Monastery, the seat of Tai Situ lineage, where he was enthroned. Afterward, he bestowed the black hat ceremony for the first time, once more, multiple rainbows appeared and flowers fell from the heavens. Amongst all the accomplished yogis, scholars, noble selfless beings, and nameless itinerant holy hermits that the secret methods of Vajrayana Buddhism produced in Tibet, the Karmapas were considered the supreme reincarnations. 
the stories of their miraculous powers were recounted orally from generation to generation. In the wondrous activity of His Holiness, the 16th Galwa Karmapa, incidents first witnessed by the 16th Karmapa's General Secretary, Tenzin Namgyal, then narrated to a group of students and afterward written down in 1989, illustrates how the oral tradition of miraculous tales gets transformed into sacred biography. The stories told in this book form a part of the oral tradition. Tibetan accounts of the lives of the masters tend towards hagiography rather than biography. This is a genre that completely ignores the human side of the person and dwells entirely on the supernormal attainments. The miracles recounted here are not emphasized to conceal the human being. These close-up encounters show the many facets of the 16th Karmapa's unique but entirely human personality. I have recorded them from those willing to share their experiences. Most are from Westerners who had meaningful contacts with the 16th Karmapa, either in India or during his three visits to the West. Let's leave behind sacred history for a moment and jump into recent memory. The 16th Karmapa lived through one of the most turbulent times in the lineage's 900-year history. His ability to see the future clearly enabled him to make preparations for the Buddhist Dharma in exile, well ahead of the Chinese invasion. In 1959, he escaped from Tibet through Bhutan to Sikkim with a large party of monks and followers carrying out what he was able to save of his vast collection of spiritual treasures. Among these treasures was the most powerful symbol of his lineage, the black crown or black hat. Another was the axe that the 12th century yogi Milarepa had used to construct and demolish the many houses that his Guru Marpa obliged him to build in order to purify his negative deeds. The axe is an important element in the making of the Karmapa black pill, which has the power to save or prolong life. There are many stories about the miraculous black pill, which Katya Holmes confirms in the personal experience and her significant contribution, how the Karmapa transformed and saved my life. The Karmapa and his followers settled in India, in Sikkim, at that time an independent Buddhist kingdom with the Chogyal or Dharma king. The Karmapa's monastery at Rumtek soon became known to the 1960s spiritual seekers who came to find out for themselves what enlightenment really was. Among them was Michael Hollingshead, whose story prefigures the Karmapa's historic meeting with the Hopi Indians in Arizona in 1974, movingly described in Steve Roth's When the Iron Bird Flies. Caroline Olioto, now Lama Paulden, who writes of her experiences in Emperor of Love, was at that time married to a Bhutanese Lama and had heard of the Karmapa through her connections with the Bhutanese royal family. Lama Suryadas, born Jeffrey Miller in New York, spent many years in India, first in the early 1970s with his Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba, and then in Darjeeling at Karlu Rinpoche's monastery, and also in Sikkim at Rumtek Monastery for several month-long periods. It was when the Karmapa first came on tour to the West in 1974 that our oral history really springs to life. Since the first emergence of Buddhism in the West and in the late 19th century, many teachers had visited, but none of his stature had ever walked the streets as freely as he did. He strode into foreign continents with fearless compassion, picking up his students from previous lives and moved them along the path of liberation from suffering. Many people had supernormal experiences. When he embodied Chenrezig, some saw the white, four-armed Chenrezig. When he gave an empowerment of the Medicine Buddha, all those in the room saw him as lapis lazuli, the color of the Medicine Buddha. To the 1960s generation desperately seeking salvation, he showed the way of yogic transformation. Many went into traditional three-year retreats and even became lamas, like Suryadas, Ken, and Katya Holmes, who accompanied Karmapa on his tours, 
received direct transmissions and teachings from him while translating or driving him from place to place, as did his drivers in the U.S., Steve Roth, Dale Brzozowski, and Ward Holmes. He taught from ordinary life situations, using whatever arose to point out ultimate reality or the nature of mind, but in fact he himself embodied what is called the nature of mind. His very presence pointed out the state of naked awareness. For some whose only language was Tibetan, he had a special ability to communicate completely with the speakers of other languages, some of them hearing him in their own language. His love of birds led him to the doors of obscure bird breeders. Having directed his astounded drivers through back lanes with no signposts, no previous knowledge of the place he was in, and certainly no satellite navigation, he would then bargain for the best birds. He left indelible memories with shopkeepers, breeders, department store managers, wherever he went. Several stories tell how he recognized certain birds as his students from a previous lifetime, and how they would die in a meditative state. When I started collecting these memories, I was moved every time. I heard how incredibly human he was in his superhumanness. He gave me a way to see greatness, says Didi Contractor, in When Time and Eternity Met. His laughter, his knowing remarks, his playfulness his love of being driven at high speed, even his manner of dying, released the magical into the ordinary world. I began to understand that greatness is not just miracles, but also humanity. When his time came to die at the predicted age of 58, he was taken to a hospital in Zion, Illinois. He had a combination of cancer, tuberculosis, pneumonia, and diabetes, but he was cheerful and caring for those around him throughout. The doctors thought it was very strange that someone with his painful condition did not show pain. In fact, there were times when all symptoms disappeared. He said to his doctor, There is one thing that is very important for you to understand. If I am needed here to teach sentient beings, if I still have work to do here, then no disease will ever be able to overcome me. And if I am no longer really required to teach sentient beings, then you can tie me down and I will not stay on this earth. An hour after his heart stopped, and fifteen minutes after the doctors gave up trying to resuscitate, he seemed to come to life miraculously, with perfectly normal blood pressure and warmth in his body. When he finally succumbed to death, he remained in meditation with his skin elastic and supple, and heat from his heart, just as it would be from a normal, live body. The doctor attending him cried on seeing these miraculous signs. He was born in the East, but died in the West seemingly a sign that his activity encompassed the whole world. Many of the stories in this book show that for his close disciples he never left at all, but has continued to care for and protect them, appearing even in a physical form many years after leaving his body. When I consider the stories of this book, they seem almost to belong to a golden age, when the Karmapa and the whole Western world were celebrating personal freedom. From my own observations, the 17th Karmapa has never known that freedom from the time he was recognized as Karmapa in Tibet at the age of seven. In Chinese-controlled Tibet, he was increasingly coming under pressure to denounce the Dalai Lama. Then his daring escape from Tibet to freedom in exile in India in 2000 resulted in another kind of imprisonment within a labyrinth web of religious and political intrigue, accompanied by the suspicion and innuendo on all sides and attempts in some of the media at defamation of character. He has been stripped of his homeland, his family, and denied access to his monastic seat at Rumtek in Sikkim, where his sacred treasures and black hat are locked up. What was supposed to be a two-day stopover at a monastery under construction in Dharamsala, while the Indian government deliberated on the best place to settle him, has turned into twelve long years of intrigue, 
with no end in sight. Since his escape at the age of 14, he has been living within two rooms in a monastery belonging to a different Buddhist tradition, which is like housing the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Vatican. In order to travel outside the immediate area, he had to get permission, well in advance from the Indian government in Delhi. The miracle of the 17th Karmapa is that he has shouldered the immense responsibility of his office with humor and majestic dignity, that he gives love to all, that he can still show humanity within the cramped quarters of what he now calls a permanent hotel, in which he does not possess even his own shrine room. He is a humble human being, a perfect bodhisattva, and already a great Karmapa. From all of us who contributed these stories, I would like to dedicate this book to the 17th Karmapa's personal freedom and the continuation of the lineage's vast, unimpeded Buddha activity. From the Kagyu.org website, Kempo Karta Rinpoche relates in Karma Chakme's Mountain Dharma as taught by Kempo Karta Rinpoche, Volume 2. When I was fleeing from the invading communist army, I was being shot at by a machine gun. In order that I not be killed, I was praying, Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno, as I was running and actually visualizing the Karmapa covering my back. I managed to get away and I was not hit by any of the bullets. About a month after that, when I reached central Tibet in Serpu, where His Holiness was still living before he left Tibet, and a group of us had an audience with him, he said, I am delighted that all of you were able to safely escape from the invading soldiers, but I wish to remind some among you that you were supposed to visualize your guru above your head and not on your back like some kind of cape. From the karmapacenter16.org, there's a wonderful compilation of stories of people who met or encountered the karmapa. So from this website, the 24th story, uh, a glimpse of Avalokiteshvara from Steve Roth. During the 16th Karmapa's 1980 third and final tour of North America, he visited Santa Fe, New Mexico, and performed the Black Crown Ceremony. On November 3rd, I traveled in a VW bus from Boulder to Santa Fe with four other Dharma practitioners, including Pema Chodron. Upon arrival, we went to the local convention center where His Holiness was performing the Black Crown Ceremony. We had no idea which part of the ceremony would be taking place. We just wanted to see him. We entered the convention center and took the elevator up a few floors. It led to one of the portals that opened directly into a large indoor amphitheater. We were well above the amphitheater's ground floor where 50 or so people were each receiving blessings from His Holiness after the Black Crown Ceremony. What I saw the instant we emerged from this portal into the amphitheater was not His Holiness the 16th Karmapa, but the radiant and resplendent Avalokiteshvara. He was luminous white, with many arms, which were simultaneously blessing everyone. His hands were moving so rapidly, bestowing potent and limitless blessings in so many different directions. This is quite challenging to describe. It was totally overwhelming and breathtaking to witness otherworldly compassionate activity taking place in this human realm. Avalokiteshvara's transparent body was complete with crown, jewel ornaments, rainbow-colored raiment, exactly as painted in countless tankas. Then I blinked and saw His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, seated, blessing people one by one. I don't know what else to say, other than this knowingness that Avalokiteshvara Tankas are literally painted exactly as he appears in the Sambhogakaya. This experience resulted in a radically enhanced view of the sacredness and fathomless power of Tankas, as well as increased devotion towards the Karmapa. And lastly, from karmapacenter16.org's website, 
there's the story of Shakyamuni Buddha's prophecy about the coming of the Karmapa. During his life, Shakyamuni Buddha foretold a prophecy found in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, which can give us courage for our lives now. Two thousand years after I have passed, the teachings will arise in the land of the red-faced man. They will become disciples of Avalokita. In that degenerate time for Dharma, the Bodhisattva Lion's Roar will appear and be known as Karmapa. He will attain the Samadhi empowerment and tame beings, establishing them in well-being through sight, hearing, recollection, and touch. And the website says, And so it is, just as Shakyamuni Buddha predicted, we have had the great good fortune to encounter His Holiness the 16th Karmapa's teachings on love, kindness, and compassion in this life, just when we in the world need them most. So the following story by Steve Roth is probably the most ridiculous story I've ever heard, and this really kind of set me off and really made me think deeply about what reality means and what the Karmapa means as a human being and as a Buddha. And so, again from the Miraculous 16th, Incredible Encounters with the Black Crowned Buddha, recounted by Steve Roth. In the 8th century Tibet, Padmasambhava made a prophecy. When the iron bird flies, when the horse runs on wheels, the king will come to the land of the red man. Twelve centuries later, His Holiness the 16th Karmapa, Rangjong Rigpe Dorje, traveled by airplane and by automobile to the Hopi Indian nation. In October of 1974, His Holiness the Karmapa made his first journey to the United States. His itinerary was packed with many great events, but from the beginning it was clear one of the top items on His Holiness's agenda was a meeting with the Hopi Indians, whom he regarded as practitioners of the Buddhist ideal of non-aggression. A small caravan was organized to escort the Karmapa from Boulder, Colorado, to the Hopi Indian Reservation in Arizona. He would be meeting with Hopi chief Ned Nayatewa. We rented a gold-colored Cadillac for the occasion. His Holiness rode in the front, and an attendant monk rode in the back, and I had the great good fortune of being the driver. We made our way across Colorado, Utah, and Arizona, reaching Hopi land early in the afternoon of the third day under cloudless blue skies. We followed a dirt road toward the rugged, flat-top hill rising dramatically from the desert floor. The road began to climb, and soon we were spiraling around the steep, rocky flanks of Hopi Mesa 1. Ten minutes later, we reached the Hopi village at the top of the mesa, a cluster of mud-plastered stone and brick dwellings huddled together atop a giant flat rock. His Holiness stepped out of the car and into the hundred-degree afternoon. He was greeted by Chief Ned, a short, wiry, and weathered man in his late seventies. In spite of all the hardships that had befallen the Hopis, here stood a chief of dignity, gentleness, and presence. When the Karmapa asked how things were, the chief responded, Not so good. There had been no rain for seventy-five consecutive days. Crops were failing, creating enormous hardships, not only for the tribe, but for others as well. The Karmapa listened intently, his face filling with compassion. He promised Chief Ned that he would do something about the situation and that he would pray for all of the Hopis. Chief Ned then invited His Holiness and entourage to enter the Hopis' sacred kiva, an underground chamber used for religious rituals. The only way to enter the kiva was via an old wooden ladder that descended through a narrow opening in the dimly lit cavern below. His Holiness, being noticeably wider than the opening, stayed above. He waved us on as we followed Chief Ned down the ladder. 
As we were viewing the sacred objects in the center of the kiva, I had the strangest feeling that His Holiness was present with us. I turned, and there in the shadows I saw him standing quietly behind us, viewing the items with great interest. I became quite disoriented. It was impossible for him to be in the kiva, yet there he was. I had no idea how he entered the chamber, nor did I have a clue as to how or when he returned to the entrance where we had left him. The only thing I know is that he didn't use the ladder, but the ladder was the only way in. There followed a warm goodbye between Chief Ned and His Holiness. The Kamapa returned to the front seat of the Cadillac, and we began our gradual descent towards the mesa under an absolutely clear blue sky. When we were two-thirds of the way down, the Kamapa began chanting in Tibetan. A stillness ensued, and with it a sense that we were circumambulating the mesa. We reached the desert floor and headed for the Karmapa's eventual destination, the Hopi Motel and Convention Center at Mesa 2. As he continued chanting, I watched in awe as the sky transformed with impossible speed from an empty blue sky into a single thick mass of steel gray-black stretching from horizon to horizon. We arrived at the inner courtyard of the motel after what I thought had been an hour's ride from the Hopi Mesa 1. I parked the car and turned off the engine. I remained in the driver's seat and watched as one of His Holiness's attendant monks opened the car door and escorted His Holiness the twenty-five feet or so to his motel room. At the exact moment the door to the room was shut, an unearthly clap of thunder exploded overhead, and multiple bolts of lightning lit up the dense black sky. Then the rain came, a rain unlike anything I have ever known. If rain could pour more than buckets, or harder than a waterfall, that's what was taking place at Hopi Land on that October afternoon. I returned twenty years later and retraced the exact route we had taken from Mesa 1 to Mesa 2. I had to drive it four times. I simply couldn't comprehend that what I had thought to be an hour-long drive actually took less than twelve minutes. Only twelve minutes had passed between a clear blue sky and waterfall rain. By evening, the Hopis and the Navajo were aware of what had occurred. Many of them gathered inside the motel's convention center and received the Avalokiteshvara empowerment from His Holiness. Many Westerners at the event were struck by the similarities between the Hopis and the Tibetans. They looked like they could have been members of the same extended family. The following day, two local papers ran front-page stories reporting that the string of 75 consecutive days without rain had been broken by the visit of an eastern Indian chief, who, among other things, was well known for making rain. One headline declared, Chief Karmapa brings rain to bless the Hopi land. But the newspapers missed the real story. Padmasambhava's 8th century prophecy had finally and dramatically been fulfilled. And so the following excerpt is again from the Miraculous 16th book, but I'm sorry I forgot to record who the author was. But it says, One morning, during the Black Crown ceremony, while sitting next to Sister Palmo and praying, I looked at him, and instead of the sixteenth Karmapa, I saw a hunched man with almond-shaped eyes and elongated ears. In my disbelief, I began pinching myself. Sister Palmo was watching me and nudged me and asked me why I was pinching myself. Time stood still. It could have been a minute or a century. I felt hypnotized. I looked at the Karmapa again. He was not wearing his own hat, but another one. I really did not know who this was. Whilst walking back to the house, I mentioned to His Holiness what I had seen during the Black Crown Ceremony, and described the vision I had of the hunched Lama with almond-shaped eyes and elongated ears. He looked at me and then clapped his hands. 
His attendant came, and the Kalmapa said something to him. When he returned, the monk was holding a tonka in his hand. When I looked at it, I saw the same person that I had seen in my vision. To my amazement, I realized I had seen the first Kalmapa, Dusum Kimpa. The following audio is from the documentary about His Holiness called The Lion's Roar, and this is the voice of the Karmapa's physician in the last days of his life in Zion, Chicago, and about how the Karmapa treated the staff and his state after passing, leaving quite an impression on those that encountered him. In 1980, it became known that the Karmapa was seriously ill with cancer. The following year, the Karmapa died in a hospital in Illinois. Dr. Mitchell Levy was a physician to the Karmapa at this time. The thing that struck me most about His Holiness was his overwhelming, unceasing kindness um, that never wavered. It was the unwavering quality. Watching as a physician uh, an unstoppable illness ravage his body, and yet this kindness that never stopped. Every morning, I would go in and ask him, are you having pain? And he would always say, no. And towards the end, it became sort of a running joke, so that the first thing in the morning when I'd go in to see His Holiness, before I could say anything, he'd smile at me and say, no, no pain, no pain. It was very confusing to the staff. We were overwhelmed because it was obvious he wasn't just denying his illness, and he didn't look like he was in pain. So the staff was constantly confronted with this person who was dying, but was still more interested in how they felt than in how he felt. Following the Kamapa's death, his principal students asked that his remains be allowed to stay in his hospital room for a few days. The staff agreed to this unusual request. They felt by the end that they would do anything to respect the wishes of His Holiness. And so they... <clears throat> had no problem breaking a rule which is extremely hard and fast in hospitals. When patients die, they are taken away and not left in the room. And yet because of the impact and, uh, that his own has had and how much the staff and the administration cared for him, they allowed this to happen. After the first 24 hours, his principal students invited me into the room and had me hold my hand over his holiness's uh, heart area. And each day I was amazed to find that it stayed warm. Uh, I wasn't as amazed after 24 hours, but then after 48 and 72 hours, I was beginning to be uh, quite shocked. Traditionally, after, um, shortly after death, the body becomes cold as the circulation stops. And in His Holiness's case, there was a definite warmth uh, over the area of the heart. As a physician, I have no explanation for this. So what are we to make of all this? As a Dharma practitioner myself, albeit a shabby one, I can attest to the accuracy and stunning detail of the Buddhist teachings on the nature of emotions, language, human interaction, the necessity of education, the efficacy of meditation, the transformative power of mantra and devotion, the aura of my own teachers and warmth and genuineness of my sangha, not to mention the metaphysical and philosophical tenets that Buddhism holds for the way reality functions, which I'm becoming more accustomed to and developing more confidence in through my own research and practice. But where does all of this lead? What is the purpose of spending so much time doing these things? There is practical benefit, yes, but practicality is often said to be an ancillary function of the Dharma. The purpose of the Dharma is to know the truth. 
but the truth is hard to come by. His Holiness the Gyalwa Karmapa was by no means the only enlightened being of last century, but to my eyes he is perhaps the most glaring and obvious example of the fruit of contemplative life. He embodies the meaning, the truth, the practice, and the result. May His Holiness the 17th Karmapa's activities be ceaseless and free of obstruction. May all beings realize their own innate Karmapa nature, and may we all find the path in our own way and in our own time, but sooner than later, hopefully, for the sake of goodness. I love you all. Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno, Karmapa Cheno.